0: It's been a blessed day in our household, and certainly not only are Denise and I honored to always be assembled with our spiritual family. Tonight we're also richly blessed to have our physical family with us, and certainly it's made our day in so many ways. And I hope all of you have had a very blessed day in so many ways as well. It is a day, of course, it's the first day of the week that is so compelling and profound in many ways. And in fact, tonight, the Bible reading that Cale read for us, taken from Isaiah 61, That'll be a passage that will be a prime part of our study tonight. As you've already noticed on the slide before you, we come tonight to the 11th and final installment in our series of the book of Isaiah. I hope it's been an encouraging series. I hope it's been a series that's had a lot of meaning connected to it. It might be interesting to recall that the book has 66 chapters. And as we tried to state at the outset, it was not our goal to take it a verse or two at a time or even a chapter at a time, but rather to select some major themes and some particular ideas out of particular portions of its chapters, and that we've attempted to do. And tonight, we will at least hit some of the high points of chapters 60 through 66 As we do that, I hope that you have your Bible available in handy. And as we look at some of these passages, perhaps you might wish to make notes or at least make references to some of the matters that we will at least consider in brevity in passing tonight. As we do all of that, let's begin by way of this introductory slide. It is such that I have placed it in the following format. Isn't it amazing that in this book of Isaiah we have found that the book divides rather naturally into two parts. Chapters 1 to 39 in many ways focused upon the historical setting of that day and time. But then in chapters 40 to 66, it is much to be said that Isaiah rather points rather notably to some future things from his day. Many of them pointed squarely to the life and times of Jesus the Messiah. And in so doing, history was written 800 years or so before it actually took place. Wasn't it true that Isaiah pointed out he'd be born of a virgin? Wasn't it Isaiah that pointed out in rather dramatic fashion the fact that the Gentiles would be welcomed in the fold of God? And yet, as we now appreciate it in the days of the New Testament, all of that and so much else came to pass tonight. It might be noted then that in these closing few chapters, as I tried to state on that slide, we have yet another example an instance wherein Isaiah directed the thoughts and the hearts of the people of his day to the reality of what would come to pass in the kingdom of the Messiah and in some of the work that he certainly was in fact to do. With that in mind, why don't we thus take a careful look At Isaiah 61, verses 1, 2, and 3, this next slide that you'll see before you is going to be a passage that we will develop in the following way. I would invite you to hold your finger in Isaiah 61, but turn with me to Luke chapter 4. And thus, we're going to go to the New Testament as we look at a development in the life of the Master which will be built squarely upon this text of Isaiah 61 without reading the fullness of that passage in Luke chapter 4, maybe I could at least point out this. It was early in the Lord's earthly ministry. And by that I mean He had not been preaching that long. And yet, as we arrive at Luke chapter 4, He came to His hometown, to the city of Nazareth. There the text reminds us that that's where He had been brought up. And yet as Jesus came to this location... I would at least like to read the first few of the verses that describe what took place. Beginning in verse 16. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up for to read. And there was delivered unto him the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. "'Because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. "'He hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted, "'to preach deliverance to the captives "'and recovering of sight to the blind, "'to set at liberty them that are bruised, "'to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. "'And he closed the book "'and gave it again to the minister and sat down. "'And the eyes of all them that were in the synagogue "'were fastened on him.' Can't you just picture that in your mind? Here Jesus, you see, had come to the synagogue, which He was rather accustomed to do. And did you notice that they delivered to Him a scroll to, in fact, be read, and He thumbed, or at least proceeded in it. Now, you might keep in mind that moving through a scroll isn't as easy as moving through a book like you and I now enjoy. You can imagine having to scroll through the scroll, but he found in it the text he was interested in finding. The text says again in verse number 17 and 18 that he found that place that is what you and I would recognize as Isaiah 61. And he read it in their hearing, but let me continue if I might. Verse number 21 says, He began to say unto them, This day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. Don't you know how blessed that group of people were that day to have assembled at that synagogue to hear Jesus Himself say, Today, this Scripture is being fulfilled in your ears. I wonder how often they had perhaps heard that passage previously studied or read in their hearing, and yet today, the one who had not only written it, but of whom it had been written now reminded them that He was its fulfillment. He was the one of whom it was speaking. Let's now revisit Isaiah 61. What is it that had been discussed and presented at that time? Isn't it interesting that in that passage it had begun like this? The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek the preaching of good tidings, the preaching of the gospel, the preaching of the message of God and His salvation, it's also going to involve deliverance. It's also going to involve, you see, freedom for those that are captive. Now, to be sure, the days of Isaiah, the circumstances of those individuals was quite different, and yet Isaiah could look down the stream of time, and as God delivered through him the majesty of these words... It's the very passage Jesus intended to find and the passage which, of course, He read. And those words He spoke today, this is being fulfilled in your ears. Without reading the rest of those verses in Luke chapter 4, we perhaps remember what happened. They, you see, were easily able to indicate the fact that the Lord was claiming to be of God. And they became so angry at Him They despised the preacher, and they were ready to kill him, even those that were of his hometown. Isn't that remarkable? The one who had come to save them and to offer God's means of redemption and salvation and deliverance, and yet they were so angry at what he claimed to be and that for which he stood that they were ready to take his life. You may notice on that slide before you, I merely have invited your attention to reflect upon the Lord found this passage. Of all of the in excess of 23,000 verses in the Old Testament, He chose to read this one. He chose to direct the attention of that audience to this particular passage. I hope today that you and I would still find it a meaningful exercise to reflect upon books like Isaiah and some of the things we've learned in this series. As you perhaps close that thought, I wonder what else we might discover in these chapters that close this book. Not only might I invite your attention to this one, would you turn one chapter forward to Isaiah 62. In the 62nd chapter of this book, you and I come across, arguably, one of the most profound elements to be found anywhere in all the Old Testament. It might well be developed in the following way. I've invited your attention to it on that slide. May I invite what name the God of heaven has authorized and ordained for those that would be His followers to utilize today? Surely it's easy to say that this wording, the name that might be at least offered, there are many in our world of religion would perhaps have controversy or worthy discussion concerning it. However, you and I come to this passage. Allow me first to read a few of the verses, and then we'll develop some considerations based on it. Let's begin in verse number 2 of Isaiah 62. And the Gentiles shall see thy righteousness, and all kings thy glory. And thou shalt be called by a new name, which the mouth of the Lord shall name. Thou shalt also be a crown of glory in the hand of the Lord, and a royal diadem in the hand of thy God. In the midst of the discussion, you find that one more time Isaiah spoke rather prolifically about matters that were to develop far into the future from his time. But in the midst of that discussion, he did make reference in verse number 2 that there was to be a new name called by God to be used by the people of God. And this name, you see, is said to be new. In other words, they weren't called by anything like this at the time of Isaiah, nor in fact for some time thereafter. I wonder what name the God of heaven had in mind, and what name might there be that you and I could appreciate for later fulfillment to this. May I invite you to note a few clues, at least a few things that surely are a part of the fulfillment of it. First, it says that this name was to be given when the Gentiles were to receive the righteousness of God. Note again how verse 2 begins, And the Gentiles shall see thy righteousness, and all kings thy glory, and thou shalt be called by a new name. In other words, the name was to be proffered, was to be given, when the Gentiles were the recipients of that marvelous and majestic glory of God. But not only that, you'll also notice in the verse that it says that God will give this name. At this point, could I already invite you to turn to the New Testament? Let's find the fulfillment of this. And as we do that, we shall be greatly strengthened and we'll be greatly reminded of just how sweet is the name. Let's turn to the book of Acts. As you and I turn to that book, of course it is the New Testament book of history. But as you and I proceed through that book, we arrive at the following. Remember, we're looking for the clue indicative of the reception by the Gentiles of the righteousness of God. The day of Pentecost comes, and isn't it a marvelous wonder that there are Jews, according to Acts 2, verses 5 and 6, assembled at that place. That doesn't surprise us because, again, it is a Jewish feast that is being celebrated. But as you and I turn just a few chapters forward, what is it that takes place in chapter number 10? Isn't it true that there we will recall that there was a man, a Gentile named Cornelius, who is, of course, directed in so many ways in his great earnestness to learn about God and to do that which is in the bidding of God. But now that part alone doesn't present to us the name by itself. That comes in chapter 11. As you come to chapter 11, Peter himself, in reflecting upon the incidents that occurred in the previous chapter, Peter has these words to say. Note with me verse 18. When they heard these things, they held to their peace and glorified God, saying... Then hath God also to the Gentiles granted repentance and life. And there we have it. The Gentiles, according to that passage, have now been allowed the opportunity and the blessed one at that for the opportunity of eternal life. The repentance that went with it and the message, of course, of salvation directed their way. It seems as if we've reached the time when the Gentiles had received His righteousness. Eight verses later. Verse 26. And when he had found him, he brought him unto Antioch, and it came to pass that a whole year they assembled themselves with the church and taught much people. And the disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. May I suggest to you, we have now found the name. Isaiah had prophesied of it well over 750 years earlier that a new name would be given, that God would choose it, that it would be given, of course, by the mouth of God, and that it would be the new name spoken of by Isaiah. Now you and I readily notice, sure enough, when the Gentiles had received the righteousness that God offered, that righteousness not only directed to Jews, but yea, to the Gentiles as well, that God gave this new name. One last thing, perhaps about that, would be this. Over the years, I have seen more than once, and perhaps you have as well, that there are those who will assert that the name Christian was given by enemies of the cross, and it was given as an insult. It was given as a derogatory name to those who had the nerve to follow Christ. That's a blatant lie. You and I have already learned God was to give this name. Men didn't make it up. Men, you see, did not select or choose to insult followers of Christ this way. It was a name that stood for a great deal. In fact, look at the other ways that name is used in the New Testament. In Acts 26, verse 28, King Agrippa was able to say, Almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian? Here was arguably one of the most notable heathen rulers of the time, and yet he understood well that Paul was persuading him, urging him, to not be something insulting but to be a Christian. In 1 Peter 4.16, the Apostle Peter could write about the worthiness that goes with this name Christian. If any man suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this name. May I suggest to you that Isaiah 62.2 is rich, meaningful, quite compelling as it specifies the name which you and I have been authorized by the God of heaven to call ourselves. So far, we've looked at two lessons this evening. Let's look at a third one taken from these last few chapters of the book of Isaiah. Let's turn to chapter 64. As you look at this chapter again, one of the verses in particular will probably sound quite familiar. I would in fact invite us to look already at a couple of these verses and then we'll look at the New Testament place that seemingly sounds so very familiar. As you begin to look in chapter number 64, you might find it interesting to listen as I read verse number 4. For since the beginning of the world, men have not heard nor perceived by the ear, neither Hath I seen, O God, beside thee what he hath prepared for them that waiteth for him? Now, admittedly, while you have heard me read that, why don't you hold your finger there and turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, and let's listen to what the inspired Apostle Paul on one occasion had to say. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, beginning in verse number 9, But as it is written, I hath not seen nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for them that love Him. Easy enough to see a strong correlation, a rather powerful basis for the former on the latter. Now let's go back and put that first one in its context. What was Isaiah saying? And what was God through Isaiah proclaiming? First of all, couldn't you and I make this observation those last chapters of Isaiah, inasmuch as they held out great hope for those people who were shortly to have difficulty in captivity. But the remnant was yet profoundly promised, God will preserve this people and they shall come out of captivity and they will be planted again in the place where God would wish them to be. Now, as those kinds of thoughts rang in their hearts and held out the hope that they so lovingly desired, Paul was able to quote of that in the New Testament and help you and I note this. I hope you'll appreciate with me the power that Paul places behind it. I hath not seen, nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him, but... God hath revealed them unto us by His Spirit. Many are the times, I suppose, that that particular New Testament passage is used a bit incorrectly. You may have heard it at funerals in which sometimes there are those who will assert, well, based on this passage, there's just no telling what God has laid up for us in heaven. Well, that may well be true, but that verse doesn't teach it. For notice the very next verse it says, but He has revealed them. This isn't talking about somehow hidden things that God has yet in store for His faithful children. What he says here is, Paul commented, this is what he's already revealed. These are the things in this book. That's what Paul's talking about, and that's what he's asserting, and that's what he's highlighting. And yet isn't it amazing that there were things contained in Isaiah 64 that were merely an introduction to the marvelous things that you and I now would appreciate revealed fully in the Word of God. Isaiah, oh, as they often, he often spoke about things concerning, containing Christ, he never fully understood all of it. We know that because of 1 Peter chapter 1. And yet, you and I today have the full, perfect, and complete Bible, both old and new, that reveals to us many things Isaiah never fully understood but God has revealed it to us. Don't you feel honored? Shouldn't you and I feel incredibly special to live this side of the cross so that you and I have the fullness of this Word which is absolutely complete? The blessings reserved for the faithful is what we've at least highlighted in the matters connected to Isaiah 64. Two chapters are left, but one lesson is all that I've chosen. Two times in chapters 65 and 66, you find a reference to a phrase that again takes center stage in the New Testament. New heavens and a new earth. Maybe you and I have often wondered, where did the New Testament writer make reference to this? It's in Isaiah 65 and again in Isaiah 66. At this point, you may well notice upon that slide that interestingly enough, this turns out to be one of the matters that closes the whole book of Isaiah. In fact, if you're looking particularly at verse number, chapter number 65, would you listen as I read beginning in verse 17 of that chapter? "For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered, nor come into mind. But be ye glad and rejoice forever in that which I create; For behold, I create Jerusalem a rejoicing and her people a joy. Perhaps that's enough of that chapter. Now turn over one chapter forward. Chapter 66, verse number 22. For as the new heavens and the new earth, which I will make, shall remain before me, saith the Lord, so shall your seed and your name remain. And it shall come to pass, that from one new moon to another and from one Sabbath to another shall all flesh come to worship before me, saith the Lord. And almost immediately, our mind rushes to emphasize the new heavens and the new earth. And you and I are well aware that there are those in the denominational world and the religious world at large who use these passages to rather strongly teach that there will be a remade utopian earth at some point, and this is where people are going to dwell, at least for some rather lengthy period of time. Is that what Isaiah was teaching? Is that the thrust of the new heavens and the new earth? Especially in light of 2 Peter chapter 3. So hold your finger here in Isaiah 65, and let's conclude our study of this book of Isaiah by at least turning to 2 Peter 3 and listening to the way that Peter makes reference to this same presentation. Beginning in verse 13, the inspired apostle wrote, Nevertheless, we, according to His promise, look for new heavens and a new earth, wherein dwelleth righteousness. And almost immediately, our mind races in amazement to hear Peter quote, or at least strongly reference Isaiah 65 and 66, and notice he applied it to you and me. He said, we look for that righteousness. He isn't merely saying they did it. What connection do you and I have to the new heavens and the new earth? May I submit to you, that takes on a particularly interesting thrust if you just go back three verses. Look back to verse 10 of 2 Peter 3. New heavens and a new earth, all in the same breath, Peter himself says. The interesting feature connected to this. The day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens shall melt with a great noise... The elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth and the works that are therein shall be burned up. At the same time, as this inspired writer refers to a new heaven and a new earth, he says, the other one's going to be burned up. How's it going to be remade if it's going to, in fact, be extinguished in the greatest conflagration of all time? Surely that's a good question. And it's an interesting thought, as you can see, developed on that slide. God's people were soon to enter into captivity in the book of Isaiah. Remember, Isaiah was writing about 750 BC. Judah would be taken captive in 586, finally. But the captivity started somewhat earlier than that, probably in about 605. And so there was still time for them to repent, but they would not do it. There was time for them to turn their attention to God, but they, in stubbornness, refused. And thus God punished them just as He promised He would. And yet all the while He promised there shall be a remnant to return and I will make a new heavens and a new earth for them. Now notice He wasn't claiming He was going to destroy planet earth and make an entire new planet for them. It was God's wonderfully descriptive way of describing a remade environment. They're going to return to a place and now they will honor me. They'll reestablish, the worship at the tabernacle. They shall be such that it will be made all right because I will be their God and they will be my people. This phrase, new heavens and a new earth, was his wonderful way of reminding them things will be different once you come back from captivity. What meaning is there in that for you and me today? Because again, after all, Peter says this applies to us. May I say, it has nothing to do with a remade planet Earth. Just like it didn't have anything to do with a remade planet Earth for them. What it indicated to them was a new environment, a new place where righteousness was to dwell, and that's what it means for us. You and I do look for new heavens and a new earth, not this literal planet. All of us are looking to live in a far better place than this. This grand place the Revelation will describe as the heavenly city that comes down, Revelation twenty one one. This new place where the tree of life is, Revelation twenty two fourteen. This new place wherein Jesus said, There are mansions here and I'll come back and receive you unto myself in John fourteen three. That's the place we look forward to. That's the new heavens and the new earth. Notice it's a description of an environment, not a literal earth. This earth will be burned up, even down to its elements. Nothing will be left. Because, you see, we look for this other place. That's the way Peter could describe it, the new heavens and the new earth. Notice again, the reference to that is such that, doesn't it strike within us a desire of excitement? And understanding that we want to abide where this environment and abode is, this new heavens and the new earth. Surely we do, and how many of the New Testament worthies look forward to that time. You and I can close that slide then like this, as you and I long for that new environment. It allows us to close this particular lesson with a small and simple word of conclusion. We have in 11 lessons looked over the features of the book of Isaiah, and we have found in this encouraging things shocking things at times and yet things which were often utilized to teach later new testament truth and that has also been true this evening i've tried to summarize at the bottom of that slide the the major matters at least we saw this evening and i hope that you and i have a renewed appreciation of the name christian perhaps a deeper understanding of that text in 1 corinthians 2 that not only spoke about the things god has revealed but just how marvelous they truly are. We began, of course, by noting the text Jesus quoted, or at least read, in Isaiah 61, and how that that was so meaningful in terms of the gospel for the message He spoke, and how it continues to be so for us. And finally, the new heavens and the new earth is your name and mine in the Lamb's Book of Life, spoken of in Revelation 20, 15. Because if it's not, we won't be able to enjoy the new heavens and the new earth. Tonight, are you ready? If your name isn't there, Jesus can put it there. It won't take Him long. You've got to make the decision that you want that to to take place. Perhaps there's someone here who would wish to obey the gospel initially. Won't you believe in the Lord with all your heart? Repent of your sins. Confess His matchless name as the Son of God and be baptized for the remission of your sins. If we could be of assistance in that way tonight, what a joyous occasion it'd be. If you, however, have known the faithfulness of walking with the Master, but you have strayed from the faithfulness of His side, maybe you've lost sense then of what the name Christian is all about. Maybe you've lost hope in that consideration of the new heavens and the new earth, and you'd like to remake it so tonight. We want you to know we'd be honored to make acknowledgement of your confession, repentance, And we'd be delighted to pray on your behalf. We would simply invite you to let us know the way we can be of some help. This psalm of encouragement has been selected. And right now, if we could be of some assistance to you, won't you come? While together we stand and while we sing.